Hello and welcome to One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide business leaders with the latest commentary on evolving business and economic news that impacts healthcare, business, and the workplace. In each episode, our One Digital advisors will be addressing evolving coronavirus situations, translating them for employers so they can be proactive for their organizations and develop their business planning strategies. Hello and welcome to today's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Session. My name is Annette Bechtold and I'm One Digital Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Compliance. Before we jump in, on behalf of the 2,000 plus employees of One Digital, I want you to know how much we truly appreciate the time and energy you're investing with us today. These are challenging times for all of us and we know that your time's at a premium. So my goal today is to kind of give you a, yet another update. It seems like we're doing updates constantly, right? Um, but kind of in this Q2, there's still more things happening on both the legislative and regulatory front. So I want to uh, take a look at some of the, the areas that have been changing, some of the new things, things uh, to be that you should be considering. So specifically related to COVID-19, uh, we'll definitely look at the legislation that passed uh, and became law very recently. So HR 7010, which is the Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act of 2020. And I swear all of these titles of everything keep getting so, so long. Um, but anyway, we'll take a look at that. And that made some significant changes to the PPP loan program. And also then we'll look at some employee benefit plan modifications. Some of this will just be review and kind of a nice place to think about, again, as, as administering the employee benefits, what are some of the changes that I need to be aware of, how different kind of operational things that, um, that now are, govern our benefit plans. And then also try to remember too that the Affordable Care Act is still here. We still have some compliance obligations and we'll just touch on a few of those. And then in the second part, I'll go through the legislative and reg regulatory landscape. What's, kind of, what's in front of us as we, uh, as, um, we look to uh, coming into the fall and toward election, um, but what are some of the next things that can happen? We have all kinds of Supreme Court things going on and there's still a bunch of pending cases. So we'll just do a quick, I'll just do a quick update on those of telling, uh, kind of showing you where the Supreme Court's gonna be focused coming into this next session. Um, some things maybe before uh, the election, uh, other things we'll see after the election. And also on the administrative side, the White House, what are they looking at? And also legislative developments. And then some, and just kind of highlight some areas of advocacy, places we're going to stay focused in carrying your messaging um, forward to the, to the lawmakers and the regulators. So with that, let's jump into the COVID-19 related um, compliance changes. So again, we'll start with this Paycheck Protection Program uh, Flexibility Act of 2020 that just passed, and then also the Employee Benefit Plan modifications, and then into those ACA and compliance obligations. So as we look at the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, this Flexibility Act of 2020, this, this was fast-tracked. So um, we've been all waiting for this next CARES bill, right? We had the CARES 2, and now we have uh, 
uh, and then we had three, and then we had three and a half, which gave a little more money to the PPP. And this cares for uh, more stimulus money to help the economy, to help the American workers, to continue to help um, state and local governments and all the things that are necessary during this um, this COVID-19 and national emergency. Uh, the the here, that fourth package is not yet forthcoming. So in the in the interim, there were a lot of things that they noticed about uh, the PPP. While it's done great things for many, many businesses, there were some challenges with it. This period of national emergency, also a much longer period of time potentially than what they anticipated when they wrote the original. So all of those part and parcel, the House came up with um, HR 7010, to expand the PPP and the, and the terms and its forgiveness for businesses. And that, um, that passed uh, right at the end of May. And then a few days later, the Senate picked it up. They passed it on the 3rd of June with no changes. And then the president signed it into law on June 5th. So that really moved very quickly through. So let's, you can see this comparison chart showing the differences of the PPP between um, eight weeks or eight weeks between the loan term um, before you'll start in the first line and then uh, what it's now. So the original term of the loan was two years. Um, it's now five years. So if you have any money left over after forgiveness, you'll be able to keep that as a loan at 1% interest for five years. The actual covered period of the entire, the loan period, the time that you can get loans, um, February 15th through June 30th was the end uh, before. This has now been extended through the end of the year. And again, this is law now, so all this is enacted. Um, the loan forgiveness, the covered period of time, what expenses I'm paying from the time I get my funds that can be forgivable. It was eight weeks. It's now moved to the earlier of 24 weeks or December 31st, whichever comes first. Um, and Vicki's got a great question. She says the specific question she wants is, is she locked into this eight weeks? Um, so anybody who, uh, which is a great question. So anyone who actually already had a loan as of June 5th, already has a PPP loan, they um, have a choice. They can keep just the eight weeks as their forgivable time or 24 weeks. And so that's something you would um, develop an agreement with your, um, with your lender. So as if both of you agree, then you can keep the eight weeks. You don't have to move to this 24 weeks um, but then up for others, 24 weeks will be the time that they would they would choose. So as long as you've had that loan as of June 5th, you will uh, you will have um, the option to go with the uh, with that eight weeks or the 24. Okay, and and then um, the terms are the same except uh, on the loan, except for the extension of the period. So um, the loan is one percent for either two years or five years. Again, if you you know if you had the loan before, it's a two year extension. Um, again, you can uh, talk to the lender if you want to. If you guys want to stay with a two year loan term, that would be totally up to you. 
The other one is payment deferral. You, you didn't have to make any payments or interest for um, the first six months. And now they've given a much more specific uh, time period. So you have for loan forgiveness, you have to actually make uh, and fill out that loan forgiveness application within 10 months after the last day of the covered period. So if you um, are in this new and you've elected this 24 or you're using the 24 weeks at the end of 24 weeks, then you have the clock starts ticking and you have 10 months in which to make your loan forgiveness application. Uh, if not, it all reverts to a loan and you've lost uh you've lost loan forgiveness opportunity, okay? And the loan forgiveness reduction, remember there were a couple of reductions. There were, um, if you downsized your staff or if you reduced salaries of any one individual um, by uh, more than 25%, as long as that person wasn't a higher paid worker, meaning $100,000 or more on an annualized basis, um, any of those reductions would, would start to, would cause a reduction in the amount of loan forgiveness. Here, um, they gave some, uh, they originally gave some ability, abilities to, um, waive some of those reductions. So if you've reduced staff, and we'll kind of look at those again, but if you've reduced staff um, and you're able to rehire by June 30th, they kind of gave this safe harbor or some exemption in there if you offered and people didn't want to come back to work, right? <clears throat> so the, um, the new provision is that... Um, if you you can restore people all the way till December 31st now and and avoid uh, any reduction in staff counting against the loan forgiveness, or you can qualify for something a brand new provision called the exemption based on employee availability provision, which we'll look at in a minute. So if you either hire back your workforce by the end of the year, or you qualify for this exemption based on employee availability. The, the any reduction in FTEs would not count against you when it comes to the loan forgiveness. And then um, the last thing that really changed, changed the uh, parameters in this law is that the loan forgiveness limitation, 75% of the loan forgiveness amount had to be used for payroll costs, right? That was the minimum. Um, now it got reduced to 60%, but in the original law, it says 60% of the covered loan amount for payroll costs, not 60% of the loan forgiveness amount, which is what the original said. Now that, um, that had, was brought up to them and they said, oh, I don't think that's what we meant. And so I, I have good news in that the new application, which we're gonna look at some new applications that have come out, the application does correct this to actually read 60% of the loan forgiveness amount needs to be used for payroll costs, okay? Um, I know that we have lots of questions on this. Um, can we use the money over a 10 week period then submit forgiveness or is it eight or 24? It's only eight or 24 weeks. You don't get to, um, you don't get to choose in there like a different time period as far as I know, uh, especially if you have a loan already um, prior to, or if you have the loan 
uh, new loans starting after June 5th. It's it's a 24-week period. That is the covered period. There's not a, a differing period that you have. The only alteration to the covered period you can have is if you want to start it instead of starting on the day you receive funds. If you want to start it on your, fir- your next payroll cycle, you can do that. Uh, but that would be the only one. Okay. Um, uh, great question on hiring back the same employee. Is it the same employee? Is it new employees? It's really a workforce item. And so when you're, when, even in the application, it talks about, you know, you're, they're looking the full-time equivalent versus full-time equivalent and which are numbers and not actual people. But you'll see as we move to the next slide and we talk about these exemptions, um, we'll take a look at this. So let's look at this reduction in staff a little bit again. Remember full-time equivalent employee. This was the calculation. You would take the average number of full-time equivalents and this is based on and and full-time equivalents per month during the covered period. So whether it's your eight weeks or your 24 weeks, you're gonna take it um, the average of how many full-time equivalent employees you had per month. And you're gonna divide that by the average that you had either in the February 15th, 2019 to June 30th, or for January 1st to to February 29th. Um, and then the seasonal, there's, there was special um, calculation for the seasonal. Now calculating uh, the full-time equivalent, he, the basis for full-time equivalent stays the same. And this one is that you can count it in one of two ways. Um, so full-time equivalent still stays the same, um, the actual way to calculate it. And it's either um, for each employee, you would take the average number of hours they work per week and you divide by 40 and you're not round to the nearest tenth, knowing that no one person can count as more than one person, right? So if they're normally working 40 hours a week and you know that, you just count them as a whole person. But anybody who averages less than 40 hours, you would take their average hours, divide by 40, round to the nearest tenth, and then you add all those together to come up with your uh, full-time equivalent number. Now, the simplified version is just that you count each full-time person 40 hours or more as one, and you count anybody who works uh, on average less as half of a person. And so that's kind of the simplified version with that. And then um, the full-time equivalent exemption. So this is what existed before, right? So this was from the original um the full-time equivalent exemption um don't you if you if you made a good faith offer to bring people back so this would be existing people right if you made this good faith offer to bring people back um and you give them a written offer uh and try to rehire them and you make this offer during the covered period or the alternative covered period, which is based on, you know, your payroll periods, um, but the employee doesn't want to, they decline, right? Or you fire somebody for cause, they voluntarily resign, or they, they want to move to, um, a, they want reduced hours to better suit their lifestyle or what's going on in their lives and thereby aren't eligible anymore, um, uh, so any of those things, um, those uh, are, or that would change the headcount, I should say, rather than eligible. It would change them from a one person to a half a person. You wouldn't include those. You get to disregard any of those things under this exemption. Those will not account, count against you. 
Um, unless you actually filled their positions by somebody else, in which case um, you would count them as gone and the new person is there, so it's a wash, if that makes sense. Um, there was also a safe harbor that was in the original, and the employer is exempt from the full-time equivalent reduction if the employer reduced the full-time employee, uh, the full-time equivalent employee levels between February 15th and April 26th, and then rehired by June 30th, right? So that's what it originally said. Now, this new piece is this exemption based on employee availability. This is what's new in the law. And so, um, and let me just answer this one question. Are employees on paid family leave still counted as a full-time equivalent as long as they are your employee? Yes. So they, as long as they're not terminated, then yes, they're still counted. Um, so what this exemption based on employee availability does is it uh, removes the loan forgiveness reduction based on the change in staffing. So um, if in good faith, you as the borrower, if you can document the following, then you wouldn't have to count this against uh, this reduction against it. So if you can't rehire the same people who were working with you on February 15th, right? And you can't hire anybody else who is qualified for to fill that position, okay, on or before December 31st. Then you don't have to count that missing headcount against you. It doesn't count against you, okay? The other alternative is that you can document, if you can document that because of rules and guidance issued by either the CDC, HHS, or OSHA that during this national emergency, so beginning March 1st, ending December 31st, if any of this guidance or requirements that OSHA or HHS or CDC gives you a, that affects operation of your business. And because of that, you cannot return to the same level of business activity you had on or before February 15th, before this national emergency, then you don't have to cover that reduction in headcount uh, uh, against, it doesn't count against you for loan forgiveness. Um, and so things um, that would fall in this bucket would be, let's say there's standards for sanitation or because of social distancing or safety requirements, et cetera. It pr prohibits the business from being able to operate in the manner that it was. So I think about the restaurant business a lot. Um, you know, that's one that really comes to mind or some of the hospitality, you can't get back to where you were because of the social distancing requirements or sanitation or different things that are impeding um, or shelter in place orders that, you know, et cetera. So if you can document that, then any of these reductions in staff um, will not count against you either. Okay. Um, the, um, okay. So we do have a new application. 
Yay, that came out Tuesday. So now the application reflects all these changes, right? The 24 weeks uh, instead of, because any new loan will be 24 weeks for their um, covered period, it won't be eight. So any loans on or after June 5th. So this, it, this does um, reflect that change in the new application. So it's, it's just a, as simple as that. Um, and then uh, some considerations though. So here's some things I'm thinking about, right? Um, do you take the 24 weeks, let's say you have the loan already. So and some of you are asking some of these questions, you know, do I take do I take the 24? Do I stay with the eight? What should I do? And I've had a lot of um, our own our own clients uh, ask ask us that too. So what do you think I should do? And so I think there's a lot of factors to weigh here. So let's go through some of that. So the first thing is, do you want a hundred percent loan forgiveness, and is that feasible? Right. So let's say. Um, you took the, you have the full amount of the loan, but at the time you took it, you you knew you probably wouldn't be able to get 100% loan forgiveness anyway. Um, maybe that's not, um, maybe that's not your primary goal. Maybe it is the more favorable terms on some of the loan, uh, you know, the 1% or whatever for additional funds for later. So you have to kind of think about that. Is it, Does that come into play? The other thing is, when are you going to incur and pay enough payroll costs to earn loan forgiveness on the part that you want forgiven? So in other words, a lot of people, and I do see a few that have asked in here um, or, or mentioned that, you know, I didn't have an, I really haven't had enough expenses in this 24 or in this eight weeks to uh, either have the that 75% or even the 60% that are payroll costs because I didn't have enough people working yet. But we're in this starting to get back, I might have more expenses on the payroll side, which will help me meet that. Well, then 24 weeks may, may, may make more sense than going with eight weeks. If others have used up most of the money for forgiveness in the eight weeks and there's nothing else they're going to use it for, then by all means, you might as well get your money now, you know? So I think it's some of those things that, um, that you want to consider. Another thing is, did you downsize? Did you reduce your staff? If so, um, can you rehire by June 30th? If the answer is no, you might need to do the extension out. Um, and so you go to, uh, you know, want to make sure that you're exercising the newer loan provisions out to the end of the year. Um, did you reduce salaries? You know, that's a, important to look at too. Can you restore those? That might tell you whether or not uh, you want to um, only use the eight-week period or whether you want a longer period. Um, can you get the 75-25 or now it's the 60, you know what I mean, in the prior period or now the 60? Can you get the 60% in eight, eight weeks? I should have said the 60-40 now. In eight weeks, um, you know, payroll versus non-payroll. Um, does that, you know, if not, then 24 weeks would make a lot more sense. And then are you going to be able to, oh, this is the 60% of the loan. This is now not loan costs anymore. This is the forgiveness amount. So, yeah. So all of those things are really important to kind of weigh to decide is eight weeks the right amount of time or is 24 weeks the right amount of time?
Uh, the other thing that this um, new law did, totally unrelated to the PPP, well, sort of unrelated to the PPP, um, in the CARES Act, the their employers could take a deferral of their payroll taxes for 2020 um, and then repay them at a, at a later date, half of, half of which would be due by December 31st of 2021 and the other half by December 31st of 2022. However, people with PPP loans were not eligible to defer taxes um, unless they actually ended up um, by the, remember the whole thing about people taking money when they actually had money, they actually took the PPP and they probably shouldn't because they had funds available somewhere else. If they were caught in that and they repaid all of their money um, as if they never had taken the loan, then they would still be eligible for the, uh, this deferral. But everyone else who'd taken a PPP loan would not be eligible. So um, with this enactment, they've removed that um, prohibition. So anyone who has taken the PPP loans can also do this deferral of payroll taxes as well. So they can take advantage of that too. Um, okay, um, let's see. All right, let's, uh, let's kind of look at some of the new applications. So on the heels of this, they created this new simplified loan forgiveness application. And um, this is meant to make it easier if you fall into certain categories. So you can use this easy form um, if one of, one of these things applies. If you're a self-employed individual, independent contractor, or sole proprietor, and had no employees at the time of the PPP loan application, and don't include any employee salaries in the computation of average monthly payroll in the borrower's application form. So if you didn't include payroll, any payroll costs when you're taking the loan, um, and you don't have any employees, you can use this easy form. It makes it a lot faster, easier to fill out. The second option um, is for borrowers who didn't reduce any annual salary or hourly wages of any employee by more than 25% during the covered period or that alternative covered period um, compared to the period between January 1st and March 31st. And, um, and so this one it would not include anybody who had annualized uh, rate of pay of more than $100,000. Um, so you didn't reduce any of anybody's pay by more than 25% and you didn't reduce the number of employees or the average paid hours of employees between January 1st and the end of the covered period. Okay. If that's true, then you can use this form as well. Okay. Now there, they do give some guidance and they say, okay, you can also ignore any, you know, when you're thinking about, did I reduce, you would ignore any reductions that um, came up because you couldn't rehire people, um, rehire the same employees from February 15th, and you were unable to hire the similarly qualified employees um, for the, by December 31st. Right. And you can also ignore reductions in employees' hours if you offered to restore them and the employee uh, refused as well. So those would not account, count against you. They wouldn't preclude you from using this form. And then the last option would be if you didn't reduce salary or hourly wages by more than 25% for the people earning 
uh, annualized less than 100,000 compared to January 1st to March 31st, that time period. And you're unable to operate during the covered period at the same level of business activity. So this is that new exemption we were talking about uh, due to compliance with uh, requirements um, that OSHA or HHS or CDC has put upon you and the business, you know, related to, you know, maintenance of social distancing, sanitation, or any other work or customer safety requirement related to COVID. So if one of those three things, oh, I'm sorry, I'm saying all that and I didn't put up the the bullet for you, but um, it's... um, all of those, if any of one if any one of those things applies, you can use the simplified form. And basically, it's now like three pages total. The this is the form. This is it right here. And then the other two pages are some uh, your certifications, your disclosures, and those types of things that you're you're signing. Uh, but no other form fields to fill in. Uh, in addition, the regular application also got updated to include these things too. Um, And so between these two applications, um, they're trying to address a lot of uh, problems that a lot of the employers were expressing with how complicated it was and that they had to hire people to help them to, to, you know, be able to do this. Um, So I think... um, I think all of these are uh, great reasons. They made some of the updated changes and they think it'll just be if more efficient, easier for, for businesses to process. And so um, they also uh, published an updated version of their, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, in this updated version of this uh, full application, it used to be 11 pages, it's now five. So you can show, see that they're consolidating and, and they're making it a little bit easier. Now, uh, there is some talk, and I have this on here, there, um, you know, about could there be some, you know, because of all, this is so labor intensive, could they just automate some of these things, right? Um, and automate some of the forgiveness, I mean, just say, hey, if your loan is X dollars, um, we're just going to automatically get automatically forgive up to this X number of dollars, like 150 grand, right? Um, And so know that they're talking about this. The House uh, Small Business Committee is talking about the the possibility of potentially, um, you know, having some sort of amount um, that they would, you know, automatically grant forgiveness for. But um, I I guess I, I also think that they've got to be thinking about the time, not only the time for the businesses, but the time for the lenders and everybody else involved in this process. Is it worth everybody's time to be looking at all that? So they are looking at it and we'll see if anything comes forward to kind of, you know, continue this streamlining or to automate any of this. And we'll keep you posted on that. Um, I'm going to jump forward. I know we've got lots of questions on this PPP stuff, but we'll try to get these answered in our FAQs, uh, or I'll try at the end to get to a few more of these. Um, Just wanted to quickly kind of just remind you of some of the things that have changed for your benefit plans, right? We now, now your over-the-counter drugs and menstrual care products are qualified expenses for purposes of your flexible spending accounts, MSAs, HSAs, your health savings accounts without a prescription. So all of those um, are eligible expenses as long as they were incurred on or after January 1st of 2020. Um, 
As far as your high deductible health plan goes, there was a notice that came out um, that um, allows high deductible health plans to pay for uh, related tests or treatments uh, for COVID-19 without disqualifying, before the deductible. In a high deductible health plan with an HSA, you can't have any, any treatment, anything that where a benefit is paid before the deductible is satisfied, except for preventive care. So um, what was relaxed in this IRS notice was that for COVID testing or treatment, uh, that will not cause a plan failure, will not prohibit people from contributing to their um, their HSA. And same thing for telehealth. If they're seeing or getting telehealth services before they're satisfying their deductible, that too will not um, pr- preclude them from being able to continue to use their HSA. It doesn't disqualify the HSA. Um, and, and you can see the time limits there for the testing, et cetera, as long as a, the service happened after January 1st of 2020, um, there's no uh, there's no failure to the HSA for uh, achieving or having those costs being paid before the deductible. And then for um, the expansion of the telehealth, um, it applies to all planners on or before December 31st of 2021 that that has to be um, included. On the diagnostic testing, you can see that too. The CARES would require that CARES Act requires that, and so all your plans should have that. Uh, that qualifies now as preventive care under all plans. And then under health plan and enrollments, a lot of insurance carriers are allowing premium payments, uh, payment delays, maybe special enrollment periods for people who didn't um, elect coverage when they were first eligible, or they're giving some premium holidays or premium rebates in an effort to to help people with costs. So, um, Claim pay, and I'll talk a little bit about the premium holidays and things in just a little bit because we've had some additional uh, guidance there. But for most of those rebates, if you're getting money back um, that was premium that was previously paid, um, that's one thing. Then you would handle like an MLR distribution. If they're waiving future premiums, then as long as you haven't taken deductions from anybody for that. then it just, the cost is sort of a wash and offset if nobody's paid anything yet. But if, if, if you're being refunded premium that was already paid and part of that was paid by the employees, you're going to have to handle that. Like if you've got a medical loss ratio um, check coming back from the carrier or in your self-insured plan, you've got excess funds. Uh, you need to distribute portions that belong to the employees based upon the contributions they have. Um, the other thing we saw is that the DOL and IRS uh, created a joint rule in April, at the end of April, that provided group health plans and disability and other welfare plans to kind of disregard this whole breakout period. So beginning March 1st and whenever this national emergency ends, that really we we have to take all of this out of all of the rules that um, for electing coverage, for um, notices and disclosures and all that, we can't really hold this time period against people is basically what they said. And so they 
it applies to all your HIPAA rules, COBRA, ERISA, all of those types of rules get sort of suspended or held in limbo during this national emergency. And um, the, it would that period, this, this limbo period of time then would end 60 days after the announced end of the COVID-19 emergency. And so basically it provides participants a lot of extra time to make really important decisions about healthcare during this emergency time. So it'll extend um, healthcare, the rights um, under HIPAA for healthcare coverage and portability, continuation of coverage under COBRA, and um, uh, extending time for if you if for claims that are denied to it to file those appeals. Um, so with regard to HIPAA, so the 30 days, uh, they usually get 30 days as a special enrollment period anytime during the year if they acquire a new spouse or a dependent by marriage, birth, or adoption. And then they get a 60-day enrollment when special enrollment window to request enrollment after um, losing Medicaid or children's health insurance chip or that kind of thing. And so what this would do is it's, it, it would give them all the way till the end of the national emergency plus 30 days or 60 days, whichever it was. So let's say they um, come out and they say that, um, you know, the national emergency ends August 1st. Well, then the special enrollment period would end 30 days after that or 60, depending on whichever one was, or actually 60 days after that, plus the 30 days, plus the 60 days. So you have these extended periods of time. So you get this whole time period plus the 60 days after, and then whatever the normal period was. So COBRA kind of works the same way. So this also extends out um, 60 days after the end of uh the national emergency, the end of the national emergency, that means that people have all that time to decide whether they want to elect COBRA or not, to pay their premiums, to for you to send all of the notices back and forth, all of that kind of stuff, Get all those things get extended. So um, you can kind of see how this is working. Now, this makes it a little uh, complicated during this time to try to figure out what's happening. And I know that a lot of carriers, some are saying, oh, you don't have to, you know, we don't know, do we cover people's um, COBRA? Do we not? Do we pay? If you're not paying premiums, a lot of carriers are holding up claims. So there's a lot of things to grapple through, and, and you should work with your consultant on, on that because there's just um, some unknowns here as far as that goes. And then they also issued a, in the middle of this a COBRA model notice, which actually doesn't address any of this, um, although maybe they'll have a new one. Um, I do think maybe there'll be a new one coming out. But this one just was really to help employers ha have that conversation or to notify employees at the time of COBRA, hey, you can do COBRA or FYI, there are exchange plans and Medicare. If you're Medicare eligible, here's some considerations where COBRA might not be a, the better choice. So they did some updating to, to educate um, the individuals about their elections and when it, it would benefit them and maybe when it wouldn't. So especially that Medicare part, which we have uh, grappled with for a while. Uh, 
COVID-related cafeteria plan changes, we saw those. Um, uh, also that you can amend your cafeteria plan to allow prospective or mid-year changes without a change in status. So you can make a, you can allow new people to come into the plan or to revoke an election during this very odd time, as long as, you know, uh, which you no normally wouldn't be able to do, but you can do that. Just make sure that you get a plan amendment done um, on or before December 31st to re reflect that change. And if it's a change for only a period of time, you, you need to designate that as well. And then the other thing was that our flexible, the flexible spending account carryover increased from 500 to $550 effective for plan years in 2020 or 2020 plan years. Again, you'll need to adopt an, an amendment to show that um, this change in the amount that can be carried over. Okay. And then grace periods could, uh, can be um, 12 months then too. Okay. Uh, there is new IRS guidance that just came out on um, this notice 2020-46. IRS now says you can, uh, you know, cash payments that are made under leave-based donation programs um, for victims of COVID-19 are not going to be considered wages. They wouldn't be included in gross income, uh, but they also can't be claimed as a charitable contribution by the employees who are donating their leave um, their leave for these purposes. Employers, though, however, can deduct the cash payments as charitable contributions. So I think some of the things they do um, talk about the Section 170C organizations, that's who it has to be given to. I think there's some work to do with your tax person to make sure that if that's the case, that the, the uh, organizations that are being donated to actually qualify. So I think that would be something that you'd want to work with uh, your tax professional on. Um, and then uh, additionally on the ACA side, you know, we did have all of these repeals, remember that, that happened at the beginning of the year that have been covered up by all of the COVID um, st the, and the national emergency. But um, we should see, um, you know, at least our rates won't be reflective of adding all of these extra premiums on them as in the individual and small group market come 2021, or as we're seeing rate filings come along from the carriers, uh, uh, they won't be inflated for any of these taxes since they've, they've since been removed. Um, and then PCORI fees, um, the patient center out comes the research institute they were these fees were due to expire in 2019 with the last payment being made july 31st of 2020 unfortunately in the um, um the new rule they uh the continuing resolution they um extended the Pecoria fees for another 10 years. And so um, we've got the new rates there for plan years ending um, 1119 through 19. Uh, that is $2.45 per covered life and plan years ending 10-1 through 12-31 of 2019, $2.54 per covered life. Both of those are still payable on July 31st. Um, and then of course, Remember, you still under ACA, you still have to be thinking about affordability as you're changing um, what you offer and how you offer. 
And the other thing that just came forward is that CMS has relaxed their enforcement of MLR reporting. So the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, um, they are uh, exercising some discretion and um, allowing um, some flexibility that, uh, that gives insurance carriers the, um, the option to prepay enrollees a portion or all of their estimated medical loss ratio rebate for 2019, um, kind of to help people with continuity of coverage or people who might struggle with their premiums, et cetera. So basically, CMS is allowing them to, um, you know, to give this prepayment um, and to, you know, they can estimate what it should be. If they know they're already going to have to be remitting payment back, they could do that and then um, issue those um, issue those as, as soon as they want. Um, they are given some dispensation about um, the reporting requirement that goes with it um, and giving some extended timelines there. Um, and then um, if, the, if it wasn't enough, like if, if there's a prepayment and the, the actual real amount become, is known to be higher when they do finalize their uh, reporting, then they would um, issue the um, difference to the individuals uh, later in the year. If it's de minimis, um, they may, uh, and they haven't, um, uh, done, and they haven't uh, necessarily um, aggregated, or they can aggregate if it's all de minimis then, and just send one check. Otherwise, if they've already paid out a portion to individuals, no matter what amount is owing, they've got to still pay those individuals that amount owing. So, um, so it's giving them some flexibility and maybe getting some, some monies back more quickly. Um, then um, on the legislative and regulatory front, there are a number of different um, court cases. I just want to kind of give you where everything stands. So we still have the constitutionality of the individual mandate uh, still out there. Um, we know that the Supreme Court um, uh, had, had been asked by the Democratic attorneys general to um, take up this case since the lower court said we agree that based on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and moving the individual mandate to to zero dollars, there's no more uh, tax, and thereby it's now um, unconstitutional to have the individual mandate, and we think it's inseverable from the rest of the law. So that's what the lower court said. It went to the appellate court and they agreed, but they did remand back that section about the severability and said, hey, itemize why you think it's inseverable. But in the interim, the uh, Democrats attorney the, uh, defending uh, the ACA had asked them to um, asked the Supreme Court to take up the case, and they agreed to, the Supreme Court agreed to do that. Um, the, the, in the middle of May, amicus briefs were filed, and so we might see hearings as early as the fall. I don't think we'll see any determination before the election. It probably will come um, after the election, probably sometime in 2021. On association health plans, um, we know um, a while ago that 
um, the Department of Labor, and as part of the executive order, had expanded um, the ways that associations or multiple employers can come together and have a particular, um, be able to aggregate as one group. And so um, the DOL, um, uh, the uh, lawsuit ensued, um, and this alternative pathway, the district court said, we don't like parts of it. They vacated two pieces, basically the common at being able to, for these disparate employers to come together, um, they didn't think uh, some of the reasons, especially geography, were substantive enough and didn't follow suit for a bona fide uh, association or group if it wasn't based on industry or trade. So they vacated that. And they also vacated a part of the, this new methodology for aggregating employers uh, that said and said, no, you can't have sole proprietors and people with no employees count as both an employer and an employee to be part of this. And so the DOL did file an appeal. We're still waiting to see where that is. Um, on the contraceptive mandate, we know in 2012 that under the Affordable Care Act, contraceptives were added as preventive care. And so um, the Supreme Court um, set, had allowed in the Hobby Lobby case in 2014, religious employers to be exempt. Um, then on the heels of that, the administration came back with a number of different regulations expanding the right to exempt people who not only for religious beliefs, but for who where it violated their moral beliefs. And there was an injunction placed, et cetera. Anyway, the Supreme Court has now heard our oral arguments in May, so we'll see if we see some final resolution there. And then finally, we have a brand new one, this transparency and drug pricing. Um, this was a new development of it. So um, the Department of Health and Human Services had issued a rule that required transparency um, for drug makers. And um, they wanted, um, you know, these costs, the wholesale costs to be disclosed. So um, the Court of Appeals struck down um, the rule and said, look, it, it doesn't make any sense that what, a, what the Department of Health and Human Services wants to accomplish is not going to be accomplished by disclosing a wholesale drug prices and, um, to the consumers. It doesn't mean anything. It's not what they pay. Um, and, and they actually HHS so much has said that in the case. Um, uh, and they know that they're trying to lower costs, but this is, this is probably not a good way to do that. Um, and also probably extends beyond their normal administrative abilities. And so um, at this point, we don't know whether HHS will appeal that decision, but this transparency that the drug manufacturers were going to have to have um, is now kind of on hold. Uh, the, uh, the next thing is this Section 1557. So there were some... The CMS um, issued some rules uh, quite a while ago. Under Section 1557, um, it, there are non-discrimination rules. It says in your health plans um, or for health providers, they can't prohibit or they can't discriminate based on um, race, color, national origin, sex, age, and disability. 
Um, and also it applies to health care providers, health benefit plans, health insurers, etc. So in the original or proposed rule that was issued, I can't remember the date now, it's quite a while, um, It, uh, I think um, it was uh, the, the interim rule came out in last June maybe. Um, so what it did was it kept the civil rights language in there and the disability protections, but it, it it said that health plans and insurers didn't have to cover gender reassignment surgery or treatment. Oh, I have that in there twice. I'm sorry. There should be a different bullet in there, but um, they don't have to cover the gender reassignment surgery. They don't have to um, have any special grievances. Uh, the definition is what the first one should say. They um, defines, uh, they no longer have to define sex discrimination to include gender identity and sex stereotyping. Um, and then require the distribution, they don't have to do, uh, do the distribution of notices in all the different languages, etc. So the new final rules um, have been issued and um, they're virtually the same. Um, so um, section it, uh, it limits the application of Section 1557 to healthcare activities of entities um, of the entities there or entities that are not principally engaged in healthcare um, to the extent that they're funded by HHS. So, um, if there's funding from Health and Human Services, they would be subject to these things. Uh, otherwise, not. So. Um, these will take effect in 60 days. I think it'll be interesting on the heels of the Supreme Court ruling um, about uh, employers and not, you know, being able to fire employees for um, for this, these same issues. And so I, I don't know if that's going to have some bearing on these final rules that just came out or not. So we'll watch for that too and see if that makes some changes. Um, and then on, on, the, on the HEROES Act, which is our Stimulus 4 package, right, there's a whole bunch of stuff included in here. So emergency supplemental appropriations to a lot of the federal agencies, um, monies to the state and local governments, um, another round of stimulus checks for everybody. It expands um, COBRA, which is a huge thing, um, and establishes a COBRA subsidies for employers having to cover COBRA premiums or for individuals paying their COBRA premiums. Not sure how that's going to work, um, but that's a significant thing, these COBRA subsidies. And so this is the House bill that did pass on May 15th. Now, the... Um, the Senate has not passed it. And then you can see this whole list of all kinds of other stuff included in here. Senate has not passed it. Um, Senate is working on their own bill. And what we understand now is that we won't see anything until after July 4th with regard to this and that some of the provisions will vary and some, there may be some that aren't there also. So, um, then um, the new proposed rule on certain medical care arrangements. Um, so this is another interesting piece. There's a joint rule that came out from Treasury and IRS uh, that um, start to think about and is proposed um, uh, how the tax handling um, of medical expenses um, or medical insurance. And so it allows, you know, most medical, most medical expenses, medical insurance, those costs are, have tax preferred treatment. And so it's extending this based on the uh, Trump rule in, in 
2019, the executive order that he had to improve price, quality, transparency in American healthcare and put patients first. Um, one of the things he asked them is to look at regulations to treat expenses related to certain types of arrangements, potentially including direct primary care and healthcare sharing ministries as eligible expenses under Section 213 of the code. And Section 213 is what allows uh, expenses to have this tax preferred treatment. And so that's what this does. The um, new rule, the joint rule that came out now allows, and it goes through all of the definitions. Say, suffice it to say, they're now going to consider membership payments for healthcare sharing ministries and for direct primary care as either medical expenses and or medical insurance and uh, deductible under, um, uh, you know, for uh, eligible for this tax preferred treatment. So uh, same with HMO membership. Um, the uh, premium costs for, you know, or participation costs for Medicare Part A and B, which already exists, but C and D, CHIP, Medicaid, TRICARE. Um, HRAs can you know, reimburse these if they're integrated with a health plan, so that still exists, which is an ACA rule, um, but maybe not your HSAs. And this isn't an effect. It the comments are due in 60 days, so I think there's going to be a lot of comments for them to go through, so we'll look to the future to see what the final rule comes back with. And last, kind of just some areas that we want to stay focused on, surprise billing, um, having uh, um, an out-of-network bill that because you went to an emergency, it was emergency situation and it's out-of-network, or um, uh, you did go to a network provider um, like a hospital and, and some of the physicians treating you, anesthesiologists, radiologists, people you can't pick, um, unbeknownst to you, out of network, you're getting these um, high out of cost bills. So surprise billing is a big thing. It's been big at, the, at the, both the federal and state level, lots of activity on the state level trying to pass legislation. Not a lot of states have, but some have enacted um, legislation here. The White House really wants to look at this from a regulatory standpoint. There's a bunch of bills in, in Congress as well. So you've got both Congress and the White House looking at um, doing something in the surprise billing area. Prescription drugs, we still want to be pushing for cost transparent cost reduction and cost transparency and increasing access for people. On the Medicare side, we still have issues about the interaction of COBRA. Uh, it's not creditable for people, uh, for Medicare age people. So people electing COBRA instead of Medicare um, do end up with some penalties later. We want to, we're also working on the Medicare observation status. It takes a number of years to get some of these things through. So you've seen some of these things before and really watching um, this, the employer sponsored market and um, making sure that all the things that, that and benefits of having um, employer sponsored coverage and how it helps employees, how it helps individuals, um, uh, to take care of their families, that we want to continue to preserve that and all the tax um, benefits that go with that. And also, again, still trying to work on streamlined reporting and some reforms on, on uh, HSAs. So um, 
and maybe it's, you know, some of the direct primary care or uh, outside clinics or things like that, not precluding um, you from using an HSA. So um, I know we have a couple of minutes left. Um, if you want to understand, I'll, I'll try to answer a few of the questions. Hopefully that kind of gives you a smattering. It's too bad there's nothing going on, right, in all of our lives. And um, there, uh, I know the departments are trying to respond to a lot of things. Um, so I'm going to try to uh, answer a few of the questions that come up um, on this HEROES Act. How likely is it to pass the Senate? I don't think in its current shape it's going to pass the Senate at all. They're going to definitely um, make some changes. Like one of the provisions I know for sure on this COBRA subsidy, the, the HEROES Act House bill, um, it would reimburse 100% of COBRA premium, um, then the Senate is not in favor of that. It, it, free coverage for everybody isn't necessarily always best um, and could really harm a lot of employers. You'll end up with lots of just sick people um, that would take coverage that might choose that over other options. Um, I just think there's a lot of things to think about there, but that's just one example. There are other ones in there. So they're coming up with their own bills. So I think what we'll see is the Senate will come out with theirs. Um, we'll see that. And then um, uh, the different, if the Senate passes that, their their version, then you'll have a committee that gets together between the House and the Senate versions to have to reconcile the differences. And so I think we'll see some some of those things. Um, the employ uh, somebody asked if are is anybody doing the payroll retention credit? So I'm assuming you're um, the employee retention credit. Yeah, you know uh, the thing is, so many people took the PPP loans, and you can't do the employee retention credit until your PPP loan is paid back. Um, so um, I think that'll be um, one that uh, we'll see more people do um, once the, once they've paid all of that back. But you can't have them at the same time. Um, you can't have both. Um, let's see. Um, somebody asked that if you're paying 100% of your health insurance premiums for employees, does that count toward PPP forgiveness? Absolutely, that's considered a payroll cost, so you can claim that. Um, let's see. Most of this is on the PPP stuff. So um, if, uh, let me see. Um, let me answer a couple more. Okay. Um, okay. So clarification, just want to clarify employer paid payroll taxes should not be considered under covered under the PPP loan. That is correct. So, um, uh, payroll taxes are not in there. State and local taxes would be um, covered, but not um, payroll taxes here uh, or federal insurance. Mm. Um, let's see, are HRA payments made during the cover period able to be used as a covered expense? You know, we think so because that's part and parcel. Typically, you can't have an HRA that's not integrated with your health plan, and so those would be part of the costs of the health plan. So um, it doesn't, the law and the guidance don't specifically say, but um, we believe that that is a, a covered expense as well. Okay. 
do I know if the government is going to forgive the taxes on the $600 unemployment that the federal government's paying? And uh, do I think that will extend beyond July? So I'm not sure about the first part of that, whether or not that's uh, they're going to forgive those taxes. I don't know. I, I haven't that the um, HEROES Act that stimulus for is huge. Um, it's a very, very big bill, um, 800 some pages. Um, but um, so I'm not sure if that's in there, but well, I, it, but there is an extension in there. So it does extend that 600 bucks all the way through the end of the year. So um, that's definitely in um, the House version that did pass. So I am not sure what's going to be in the Senate version at this point in time. Um, so if an employee was on disability at the time of the loan application, would they count as an employee at the time? Um, you know, we had this question a number of times. So if... Um, so if they're still considered an employee, then you would count them as a full-time equivalent because they're uh, you would count them as one of your full-time equivalents. Yes, yes. Um, I'm not sure I understand. Can you use the new form if you keep the eight weeks? Um, I think so. I think that the forms are just the new forms and they replace any old forms. I don't, I don't think you have to go back and use the old application forms, um, not for the forgiveness. So I think you're just going to use those new forms. Um, uh, I didn't really pay attention, to be honest with you, whether they gave the option for what number of weeks or not. Um, so I'd have to look at them, but I do think that the calculations are still probably correct um, and maybe give you that option if 75%, not 60. So I'm not sure what that second part is. I'm sorry, Jeff, I'm not understanding that. But um, yeah, I do think you, you get to use um, the new form. With reduce. Let's see. So, um, so for the reduced pay per employee, what do you do about employees who are out on FMLA or a leave of absence and you can't pay them any salary? So their salary is reduced. So again, remember, you have that ability that if you restore their salary um, but before December 31st, you're all good, right? So, um, so you have all the way to the end of the year. So presumably, FMLA is only 12 weeks, right? Uh, exercising this, you know, these new um, loan terms, basically, if you will. So now getting all the way through December 31st to be able to be whole again, if you will, will improve your ability to get your full loan forgiveness and then it won't 
you know, it won't be reduced. So you just have a long time, longer time period. So again, you're going to be restoring their salary um, once they come off of leave. Um, or if they don't come back and you offer them, they don't come back, they won't count against you. You can show them as I've offered and they refuse to turn to return to work, right? Or you're going to replace them with a, a new person and, and thereby, um, that salary then gets replaced as well. So you have time to make that up in this new one. Um, so for employees earning more than $100,000, the previous eight-week period restriction limited wages to $15,385, right? That, that you're right, $100,000 divided by 52 times eight weeks. So if you do the 24 weeks, it's the same thing. Yeah, you're going to do the same math. So 100,000 divided by 52 uh, times 24 weeks, which would be $46,154, okay? Um, maybe just a couple more. I'm doing the best I can. There's a lot here. Um, take a couple more. Just I want to be sensitive to your time. Um, if you use, if we use 75% of the loan on payroll and 25% on other allowable costs, is there a penalty? No. Uh-uh. No, you've done better. The minimum is... Um, the minimum is that you at least use 60% for payroll costs. So if you've used more, then you've, you, the, you're, you're gold. They're happy about that. So Because remember the whole loan, the idea was to keep people employed and working and earning their pay. So the, the provision is at least 60% has to be used for payroll. So good question, Patricia. Thank you. Um, Okay, if you choose the eight weeks and you come short of using all of the loan, can you ask our partial forgiveness and pay back the balance alone? Absolutely. So that's the kind of the beauty of this whole program when it came out. Um, whatever you've spent in that eight weeks, you've spent in the eight weeks. And if it, um, you know, and whatever part of that is forgivable, that's the part you're not going to have to pay back. Anything else becomes this loan at this 1% and now, you know, extends up to five years. Um, you can pay it back immediately or keep it under the terms of the loan, right? And, and uh, pay it back based on what you and the lender describe as your normal payback and use the money, the other money for whatever, whatever you want to use it for. Okay. Um, That rehire date of June 30th, it was on the, so if you have a loan that you took out before June 5th, um, the stipulation was that you had to rehire people by June 30th in order to not have any reduction in headcount or, or um, count against you um, when you're figuring out loan forgiveness, right? Um, so if you're extending the term of the loan, um, you know, um, you've, you, if you took it out before, you, you get this um, longer period. The whole loan extends now. The whole period now goes through the end of the year. So you just have this longer time frame in which to, um, to rehire but it does make you think about like, how am I going to one, you know, my eight weeks was my eight 
weeks, you wouldn't actually um, be able to file for forgiveness till much later. So I have to think about that. Um, but the rehire by June 30th, that was for employees reduced in hours or laid off. Yeah, in that eight-week covered period. You did hear that right, so that's fine. Um, so this is an interesting, Drew, interesting question. If you had if you had the eight-week loan and you extend it to 24 weeks, but you only have funds for 16 weeks, are there penalties or does that really affect anything? I don't think it really affects anything, right? So if you um, if you have like if you've gone through all of your expenses by the 16 weeks and you've not, now it's all forgiven, it's all forgiven, right? There aren't any prepayment penalties. There's no any nothing that precludes you. Now, if you haven't used up all your cash, you know, um, or you haven't gotten it to be all forgiven, then the, you have that extra extending time period. But if you've actually substantiated all everything that would be forgivable or the entire loan amount as forgivable prior to the 24 weeks, uh, you're not going to be penalized in any way. No. Um, okay. Um, can you replace a laid off employee with someone else, even if you didn't offer the original person to come back? Um, yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, when you submit your application paperwork, it's going to be, um, your application paperwork is going to be, um, it's just going to have a count of number of full-time equivalents. So you'll just count a different person as, as that one instead of the other one. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the same. So good. Um, listen, thanks for hanging with us. I know we could be on here long, but I want to uh, make sure that uh, I'm sensitive about your time too. Um, definitely, uh, here's some resources. We've been trying to keep you uh, abreast of everything. I'll try to get some, a lot of these Q&As out there um, in the next week or so, or I'll try as, as best I can, as many by the end of the week, maybe to um, include so that you've got some, some place to go to kind of look at, at some of this information. In the meantime, please contact us. We, um, I think, um, um, uh, what we'll be doing, um, uh, as a reminder, um, is that, um, you'll get an email tomorrow with the video replay of the session. So you'll be able to listen to it again, um, as well as the slides that we have. So yes, for all the folks asking about slides, you'll get those too. Um, each employee advisory session is also available on podcast. So more information about how to access these is on our COVID-19 advisory hub at onedigital.com slash coronavirus. Please stay healthy, stay connected with your family, friends, and coworkers, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. There's never been a time more than now during which our commitment to standing as one with our customers and providing peace of mind is more important. 
We are committed to providing the guidance you need to make complex decisions, even in the most challenging times. For additional resources, thought leadership, or for the latest employer information related to the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit onedigital.com forward slash coronavirus. Thank you.